Back up, please. Hello and welcome to the Point Blank Show. My guest today is Tom Standage, Deputy Editor of The Economist and the editor of The World Ahead. He's also a drummer and describes himself as the least musical member of a musical family. He's authored several history books, including A History of the World in Six Glasses, among my all-time favorites. Today, he joins us to talk about his most recent book published in 2021, A Brief History of Motion from the Wheel to the Car to What Comes Next. Thanks, Tom, for joining in. Hello, it's great to be here. Tom, one of uh, the most baffling things that I read from your book is that it wasn't entirely evident to mankind until centuries after the wheel was invented that you could do something with it. Meaning, you write that it was invented back in 3600 BC and... uh, only until 1800 did we have horse-drawn carriages, was it, or, or you know, wooden vehicles that were pulled by animals. So what what took so long? So Flintstones were wrong then to showcase what <laughs> yeah, they yeah. did. Yeah, the Flintstones are definitely wrong. That's that's true. So no, the wheel was invented probably about 3500 BC, and some people were using it right away. The, that, you know, the people who invented it, it looks like it may have been used in uh, mining in Central Europe. So you make a basket and you're dragging all of this ore around. So it kind of makes sense to put wheels on the bottom of the basket. So that that's possibly where it appears first and it then it does spread very quickly it spreads around um the top of the black sea to mesopotamia and so you then see you know within a few hundred years there are uh, images of wheeled vehicles in mesopotamia and it looks as though there were agricultural vehicles using wheels they didn't have steering but they were sort of basic carts you could roll them up and down you could use them for bringing stuff in from the field so that was all happening quite quickly what is striking though is even though news of the wheel spreads very, very quickly when it's invented. And in fact, you know, it's the kind of thing where if you've seen it, you could travel a long way and then you could tell someone else how to make one. That's not something you could do with, say, a metal working technique or an agricultural technique. Just seeing it isn't enough. But with a wheel, seeing it is enough. What's striking then is that the the idea spreads very quickly, but there are entire civilizations that choose not to use it most notably the egyptians and the egyptians build you know the pyramids and everything without using any wheels at all and it's just because for them it didn't make any sense they had the nile and egyptian culture was very concentrated along the river nile and the easiest way to move things around was just putting them on rafts on the nile and the easiest way to move things around on the on the sand was to roll them on rollers not to use wheels and in fact no wheeled vehicle in the world at that point would have been able to carry one of those blocks that was used in the making of the pyramid so the egyptians were they just looked at the wheel and thought yeah that's very cool but we, we can't see the point um and it's only as you say um a bit later about 1800 bc when the hittites who are a culture to the north of egypt uh invent the war chariot and this is a much smaller lighter vehicle than the agricultural carts that have been used in, you know, up to that point. The war chariot is then a real danger to the Egyptians because the Hittites conquer much of the of the region. And suddenly the Egyptians are like, OK, now we can see the point of this. So then they get really into war chariots. And in fact, you know, in Tutankhamun's tomb, there are a couple of, of war chariots. They're the sort of Ferraris of their day. They're incredibly light, incredibly fast vehicles. And they were you know, extremely expensive. And, and that's why kings were depicted riding on them and uh, and so on. But yes, what's really amazing is that the Egyptians know about wheels for you know about 2,000 years and don't bother to use them. Yes, and Egyptians and Mesopotamia, they are neighbours, aren't they? Egyptians also 
learned quite a few things from Mesopotamians, let's say writing and the like, but they... Exactly. Uh, We're not they, quite sure. It looks as though, I mean, I favour the theory that writing spreads from Mesopotamia to Egypt. We know there was trade between the two because there are you know, Mesopotamian objects found in Egypt and vice versa. Writing appears roughly simultaneously in both places, but there's an ongoing academic debate about whether the Egyptians got the idea from the Mesopotamians or whether they sort of just happened to invent it at the same time. I'm more inclined towards the uh, the first of those explanations. So yes, there was definitely um, ideas being exchanged and the wheel was an idea that spread very rapidly. And the Mesopotamians, frankly, didn't use the wheel for a great deal. I mean, you know, the earliest depictions of wheels in Mesopotamian images, uh, in particular, there's a, there's this wooden box called the standard of Ur, and it's a sort of ceremonial box that depicts a, a procession and, and a war scene and things like that. Essentially, the, the wheeled vehicles were these rolling platforms that the king would go and watch battles from. And um, and so they would be a sort of high up vantage point. They didn't have steering at this point. These uh, these vehicles had a very large turning circle. And, um, and then, of course, they didn't have horses. Horses hadn't been domesticated at this stage yet either. So they were using these rather smaller animals to pull them along. So mostly at that stage, vehicles were sort of expensive status symbols rather than something that was actually terribly useful. And was that one reason why folks didn't quite fancy people riding cars or these chariots or these carriages drawn by horses because were they considered to be a little elite? I read the rich would honk harder just to get the pedestrians out of the way around the time when the first car or anything that resembled a car came along. It wasn't quite embraced as a very good substitute to horses, which, as you write, was a very big source of manure and filth on the road. Yeah, so, yeah exactly, yeah. exactly. The general picture is that the fortunes of wheeled vehicles sort of rise and fall. So initially you have people like the Egyptians saying, why should we bother with these? Then the war chariot is invented and some, suddenly wheels are really, really cool and manly. Egyptian kings, if you look at a uh, a wall a carving of, a, of an Egyptian king, invariably he's firing a bow and arrow from the back of a chariot. And Assyrian, similarly, Assyrian imagery shows, you know, kings are, are always depicted hunting and things at the backs of these fast chariots. So it's very, very cool. Then what happens is eventually horses are domesticated and then horses are bred to be bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually they can carry a warrior in full armor. And that suddenly means you've got a way of traveling that's just as quick as a chariot, but it can go over uneven terrain. It can go over hills and then cavalry becomes superior to chariots. And there, you know, there's a famous battle between uh, Persia and Greece under Alexander the Great. And the Persians lose and Alexander is shown on his horse triumphant while the, the king of Persia sort of skulks away in his chariot. And this was because at that particular battle, the Greek cavalry was was clearly superior to the Persian war chariots. And so war chariots became sort of rather frowned upon. In fact, when the Romans get to Britain, they're surprised that, and that's quite a bit later, uh, sort of 300 years later, so, so sort of first century BC. But when the Romans get to Britain, they're quite surprised that the, the local tribes here who are then fighting the Romans are still using chariots because that's sort of old technology. You know, we've moved on to to horses and cavalry now, folks, isn't that isn't that what you should be doing? And so then you get in the medieval period, the early medieval period, you get the whole idea of the knight and the sort of heroic knight on horseback 
and it becomes positively frowned upon for men to go on wheeled vehicles. They are for women. And this is where we get this stereotype of the of the princess in the in the carriage, in the chariot. Well, it's not a chariot, actually. It's because a chariot has two wheels and is a fast vehicle. So it's a sort of princess in a in an ornate carriage or coach uh, with four wheels. And then the, the prince who is marrying the princess is always on horseback. He's never in the carriage with the princess because women go in carriages, right? This is the custom in, in the Roman period and, and later that, that essentially wheeled vehicles are for women and they're a way to protect women and to stop other people seeing them, whereas men are manly and go on horses. And women who go on horses are they're thought to be a bit weird and men who go in wheeled vehicles are thought to be a bit weird. And so, yes, you do get this, this sort of thing. But then the fortunes of all of these things change again with the invention of gunpowder weapons and gunpowder weapons mean that suddenly the knight on horseback is the you know looks old-fashioned because you can shoot him with a cannon or a gun or whatever and then you can put these guns on the back of carriages and this is something that you know in central europe becomes a a, a form of of war fighting where you essentially make a, a fort of of carriages that all have guns on them and um and suddenly uh, knights on horseback look old-fashioned and suddenly men riding carriages driving a, a new fast kind of carriage what the coach is is called so this is the origin of the coach and the coach is a, a particularly fast new kind of carriage i mean it's nothing particularly different about it except it's suddenly deemed to be cool and so you get the idea of sort of men should learn to uh, drive carriages and that's now the coolest thing and carriages are now status symbols rich people have carriages more than one carriage they have their coat of arms on the side they have glass windows suddenly carriages are cool again and so uh, th- what i'm really trying to get to here is because what i'm interested in always is the uh, is the social impact of technology and the interaction between new technologies emerging but then how those technologies are received and what people think of them and so this is a really nice example of how wheeled vehicles kind of you know have ups and downs there's a bumpy road to their adoption and then eventually of course you get to vehicles that can move on their own without the horses you get steam vehicles you get cars and now we have the the idea of the car as the status symbol or is it still you know is that falling out of favor as well so that's that's what i'm trying to show i'm trying to show the very very long history of this idea that you are what you drive what where which places did you have to go to what rabbit holes did you discover to be able to dig out Stuff. There's a lot out there, but to be able to tell a story in a way that a layman can grasp how big a challenge was it and how did you know what to leave out and what to keep in? Because even what you've summarized succinctly here is a big challenge. No, that, I mean, that's that's the fun part of um, of writing books. And, of, and in, in fact, I think of doing explanatory journalism. And the reason I'm you know primarily a science and technology journalist is that that tends to be the kind of journalism that the way you have to explain stuff. You have to make complicated or, or new things comprehensible. And so, so I'm applying the same skill when I'm uh, researching history. And yes, I mean, it's always the case that the largest amounts of synthesis and going down rabbit holes about depictions of wheeled vehicles on pots in uh, in various periods of history is trying to synthesize a global narrative from lots of different strands of evidence from lots of different parts of the world is a challenge but it's also what's what's fun about it so so yes i i always start off with you know when i've written these books that look at thousands of years of of history of a thing whether that's food or drink or media or in this case wheeled vehicles i do start off in a lot of you know archaeological journals and reading that kind of thing a lot of it is archaeology to begin with and ancient history and then it kind of gradually moves into um you know other other sources where you get sort 
sort of direct first-person sources and, and so forth. You know, I went to look at vehicles in, in various museums around the world and, and that sort of thing. So it's one of those topics I've always been into cars since I was very small. And uh, so uh, it was one of those topics I always meant to write a book about. And so this is it. You tweeted this about a decade ago or something or on Facebook that one of your editors back in the day when you were not with The Economist had written some 30 commandments of writing where one of them was that if if you have a tangled bowl of spaghetti, a good storyteller will pull one strand of it, preferably with all the masala and whatever attached to it and, and give that to the audience rather than confusing them with too much information. So you've done the uh, hard yards to put together something that, you know, folks can understand. And and one of my, one of the interesting bits from your books is that social element that you talked about, the social yeah. impact. Now, for instance, at the beginning, before the car came into being, uh, into existence, it was the bike. Of course, there was railway and then there came the bike and it was a symbol of romance where it was okay for the, you know, the, the tire to go flat. They, it would give folks to just chit-chat and then take the bike uh, back home while yeah. they walk. Uh, then there was drive-in. Was a romance or rather a part of camaraderie a very key element for it to drive forth the, the whole yes industry. no i think i think it was um, uh, so um i have described bikes and bicycles and the popularity of the bicycle in the late 19th century as a sort of dating technology as much as anything else so the kind of the equivalent of a dating app today and that was essentially because it was expensive to have a horse. And so most people didn't have horses because you have to feed them the whole time, whether or not you're using them. A bicycle allowed people to travel much more quickly than they could walk. And it gave them the complete sort of freedom of movement that having a, a horse would give them because you could go wherever there was a road or even where there wasn't a road. And uh, and one of the things that bicycles do is they they lead to these bicycle clubs are formed and and uh, bicycle owners become quite uh, effective lobbyists at getting roads improved so that you can um, you can cycle around more easily. And in many ways, they sort of pave the way for the car because there are legal battles about whether you can do things like ride a bicycle in Central Park in New York and in other places. There are people saying, no, 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 we've only ever had horse-drawn carriages there. You can't have newfangled vehicles. And when they lose that, they have essentially paved the way for other newfangled vehicles like cars uh, to go later. And of course, cars benefit from rubber tyres and smoother roads as well. So there is very much this paving of the way for the car in, in the story of the bicycle. But yes, adoption for a lot of people was driven by the fact that you had this sense of freedom. And that meant that you could get to you know nearby villages. It essentially expanded the dating pool for people because they could go further afield to see people, whether they were friends or, or whether they were romantic partners. And so uh, that was very much um, something that people did. And there was a sort of moral panic around, around bicycles and how terrible this was. But yes, there, is a, there are a lot of contemporary reports from people, you know, from women saying, you know, how to meet men on a bicycle and saying that, you know, an artfully arranged flat tyre would cause, you know, a, the right sort of man would come along and say, can I help you? And and maybe he'd fix the tyre, maybe he'd walk you home or whatever. But but only a sort of chivalrous man would bother to stop and ask, offer you help. So you were immediately filtering out, uh, <laughs> you know, the wrong sorts of folks right away. If they weren't going to stop, then you maybe didn't want to spend any time with them. So there's a lot of um, discussion about the emancipation of women through bicycles as well. It gave women the freedom to move around more and again that was something that a lot of men disapproved of but um there is sort of a clear feminist strand to the adoption of the bicycle in the 1890s 
it was quite biased towards uh, men in that I think there was an advertisement, a print ad that you have shown in your book back in 1910, which says even a woman can drive. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> clean, reliable and not too many moving so, parts. Well, that's, that's to do with electric cars. So in the 1890s, it really wasn't clear which technology was going to win. In about, I think it's 1897, I think there's equal volumes of steam and electric and petrol engine cars being sold in America. So they're all sort of neck and neck at that point. I think in some years, the electric cars actually have the lead. They are the most um, they are the most popular cars. Uh, so, you know, it is worth asking, well, why did we end up with the with the petrol cars? And the reason is that uh, the electric cars didn't have very good range. The battery technology was very primitive. And of course, there wasn't widespread electrical infrastructure. People didn't even have electricity in their houses uh, a lot of the time. So plugging in your car was not an option. And if you drove somewhere else, there wasn't going to be a public charging point or anything like that. So um, electric cars really were at a disadvantage. And then steam cars, the big problem with steam cars is that it takes an hour or two for the boiler to to heat up. So you really have to um, know that you want to go out quite a long time in advance. And you basically need a full time employee to look after the car. So at that point, you get a lot of people going from being carriage drivers or footmen to being people who look after cars for you and, and become your chauffeur. But that, you know, was very impractical. The petrol car was was less reliable to begin with, but it was uh, it had the advantage that you could buy petrol at hardware stores because it was a cleaning product. Um, so you could get it everywhere. And so you didn't worry about running out of, of fuel on the road. Um, and so in the first decade of the 20th century, the petrol car emerges as the as the winning technology. And the people, the companies that were making electric cars end up marketing them just to women and saying, well, yes, we recognize that this is not the technology that is you know, that most people want. Uh, it's not fast and powerful enough for the manly male driver who wants to go on great adventures, but they're great for women. And this was the, the marketing line that was taken because you didn't need to be strong to turn the, the handle to start the engine like you did with a petrol car. And so women were assumed to be weak and unable to do that. Uh, also, a, a petrol cars broke down the whole time and men were assumed to be naturally, you know, good at mechanics. And women were assumed not to be because they, if nothing else, because they wouldn't want to get oil on their dresses or whatever. So the idea that electric cars were, you didn't have to be strong to start them. They were quiet and they were easy to use. They You didn't need to maintain them. They were reliable. Also, the fact that they had a short range was actually a, a feature, not a bug from the point of view of the men who were buying cars for their wives, because it meant they couldn't go very far. In them. Oh, right. um, I mean, they could drive into, into town and visit their friends and then drive, or go to the opera and then drive back again. If they wanted to leave and run away, they couldn't run away in a, an electric car because they wouldn't get very far. Um, in those days, you know, the best the best electric cars had a range of about 70 miles and most of them had a, a range of about half that so electric cars were by 1910 or so very much being aimed at women buyers or at men buying them for women and at women drivers and that's why you get the adverts like you're talking about you know so easy yeah. to drive even a woman can do it <laughs> buy one for your wife or daughter this sort of thing um and that idea that electric cars were kind of girly and inferior and real men have petrol engine all that sort of thing um that really did persist into the you know i think into this century and it's only things like the tesla roadster and other high performance electric cars that have 
have really fought back against that. And that was very much the strategy with Tesla, which was to change the perception of electric cars by making them incredibly fast. And the, the original Tesla Roadster was often put up against Ferraris and Lamborghinis and things. And it could easily beat them in a in a drag race because it has such phenomenal acceleration. But of course, the whole modern electric car is made possible by a technology that didn't exist a century ago, the lithium battery. Um, and so that wasn't an option back in the day. And so that's why we ended up with uh, with petrol cars, one of the reasons. And yet the first person to use an automobile, you write, was a woman, uh, Bertha Benz, yes, uh, the wife yes. of Carl Benz. I, I love the story. Tell us about it. What did she oh, do? It's, a, it's such a lovely story. And um, uh, yes, yeah, so Bertha Benz was Carl Benz's wife. And she helped him develop the first car. The f and if you look at the pictures of the first car, it looks like a more like a tricycle than a car, because it is. It's made of bike parts. It's got bicycle wheels. It's got one front wheel. It's got this small in internal combustion engine under the seat. Carl Benz develops this and drives it around in the yard of their house. And he keeps wanting to make it better. And, you know, he's not ready to launch it yet. And it's not really, you know, and, and she's like, no, come on. This is actually something that people would buy. It's really useful to make her point. His wife, Bertha, decides to go on the road trip. And it's like the first road car road trip in history. So she goes off to see her mum, who lives about 50 miles away across country. And she takes her two sons with her, uh, which is quite useful, actually, because it turns out that the one of the problems with the original design of, of Benz's car was that it couldn't go up hills. Um, it had a very, a very weak low gear, so they had to push it up hills. But they could stop off at the chemist and buy the cleaning fluid that is basically identical to, to petrol. And that was what it ran on. The chemist where they stopped and did this is now has a plaque on the wall saying it's the first filling station in automotive <laughs> history. But anyway, yeah, so she she gets to her mother's that evening and sends him a telegram and says, I've got here. She's left him a note in the morning, by the way, saying, you know, I've gone to see my mum or words to that effect. And then she stayed there for a bit and then she drove back again. And on the way back, she stopped at a cobblers and she had the brakes improved by having an extra layer of leather put on the brake pads because the brakes weren't very effective at stopping the car going down hills. So she gets back and she goes, yeah, look, it's fine. It, it goes over long distances. You should probably make the low gear a bit lower so that it's easier for going up hills. And I've improved the brakes for you. And this gave Benz the confidence he needed to take the prototype car to a essentially a trade show, an exposition. Uh, and he won the prize for the greatest invention at the exposition and you know, it was in all the papers and, and that began the commercialization that people started place, placing orders. So his wife gave him the confidence to sort of stop tinkering and get that that first product out there. And it, obviously, it's been improved upon massively since then, but it's a sort of minimum viable product of the car. And so she she pushed him to uh, to actually start promoting it and, and start selling it. Right. Now, the great artist's ship is what the quote is. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So he was just faffing. He was like letting the, the perfect be the enemy of the good. And that was the problem. That it was like, you look, just get it out there. And then, of course, you know, they start adding things to it, like the next version has four wheels instead of three. And then someone invents the steering wheel and because the cars originally had tillers like boats. And so, you know, there were there were lots of improvements that came very rapidly after that. And what explains the sudden surge in Europe and America owning cars, especially in the US? In 1900, America had around 8,000 vehicles, uh, and by 1920, it was 8 million. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What happened there? Well, the single biggest thing is the Model T Ford. But essentially, the car becomes, it's originally a plaything for the rich. And in the 1890s, mm. it's just sort of rich people driving around and annoying everybody. And cars start to become a bit more affordable. But it really is the, the mass production of the Model T Ford that changes the game. And the Model T Ford 
is initially not built on a moving production line. So it's initially launched, um, I think it's in 1908. And it's a few years later that they improve the efficiency of the process. They do things like, you know, famously get rid of all the color options except black so that they don't have to make different colored ones. And they can just like make them all black. And then it's much simpler. You, you know, this is cheaper, right? It was just cheap. It was cheap. It was the cheapest single color. So they just went for it. And then obviously the moving production line where you have just cars moving along and people who do the same process, whether it's just like adding this screw or this nut or this bolt in a particular place or fitting this part onto it. And they're just doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. And it's really boring, but it's very, very efficient because they learn to do it you don't need to train them very much. And then they they learn to do it. That meant that the the efficiency of producing these cars shot up and the price of the car came down. I mean, basically, the design didn't change for about 20 years, which turned out to be a big problem because then the Model T was obsolete. But really, what's amazing about it, and this is something that we think about today, we're used to the idea that computers you know, get faster and cheaper. And we talk about Moore's Law and all this sort of thing. Moore's Law is a, a more specific sort of computer industry version of a much deeper law called rights law with a w and rights law says that the more you make of something and that by that he means the more the human race makes of anything the more practice people have in making something uh, the cheaper it gets and you just see this you can plot this for all sorts of things but it's really striking with cars if you if you think about it the number of cars goes from 8000 to 8 million that's a thousand fold increase in the US it's largely because of the model t and where it isn't the model t it's because other companies have copied the mass production model so so you've got a thousand fold increase in the number of cars in 20 years. And that's the same as doubling every two years, 10 times, right? right? Because right. because two to the power 10 is 1024, right? So right. what and what does doubling every two years sound like? It's Moore's law. Moore's law. Right. right. And Moore's law, we kind of think, well, of course, you, it's easy to double things when they're tiny little transistors and they're, you know, microscopic and there are billions of them on a chip. But we, the idea that the same law applies to, you know, <laughs> two ton cars made of metal. Well, it does, it turns out. And, um, and you know, we're now seeing it with wind turbines. We're seeing it with solar panels. We're starting to see it with electric cars where the prices are starting to come down. So the Model T is incredible because you get computer industries style and speed of scaling mm. and that is what makes cars affordable and so you get an enormous increase in volume and associated dropping cost and that makes cars something uh, no longer just for the rich they are something that ordinary people can afford to buy and that's what the model t ford does ford's factories uh, you make a mention somewhere they became a spectacle for uh, tourists to come and watch how the cars were being rolled out of the assembly line and exactly and they would set up a sort of model production line at or in fact a you know a real but small production line at expositions at trade shows so that you could come and see how it worked it really was the wonder of the age and and people wanted to copy ford's methods in lots of other areas and in fact one of the things that happens with fast food production and this of course is an outgrowth of the car because people driving wanted to be able to eat quickly and so then you get these drive-ins and drive-throughs where uh, they wanted to be able to manufacture food very very quickly and so you end up with a fixed menu a very small menu of options so you take away choice like you do with the model t only being available in black um, and then you manufacture all of your burgers the same way from the same parts. So you're fitting together parts on a production line. So that if you look at the way that McDonald's evolves, they're essentially copying Fordism. They're applying mass production and the production line to food. And that's sort of repaying the favour because it's drivers who who obviously um, you know are interested in being able to eat quickly. Ford also 
paid their workers a little bit more so that they could go on to further buy the cars that they make as compared to others. Later, as you said, for 20 years, they did the same thing. I think General Motors came in and figured out, you know, we need to market this well. They beat them to it. But how would Ford or Sloan react to entrepreneurs today who talk about, hey, it's perfectly fine not to own a car. And you talk about, wasn't it Netflix for cars was a model by someone similar to yeah, yeah, yeah. software as a service? Uh, so Yeah, uh, yeah. They're, they're all, all good questions. I mean, just going back to Ford paying people more, what Ford found was that raising wages saved him money because if he paid better than other car manufacturers, he would keep, uh, I mean, the, the turnover, the churn of workers was incredibly high um, because working long hours in car factories was really boring. What he found was that if he paid people more, fewer people left. And then he didn't have to spend so much time training people. And then he also didn't have to spend time training people because the production line jobs were individually all very simple. There was something like, you know, 5,000 steps to making a Model T and you only had to learn to do one of them. He said at one point that one of the biggest savings I ever made was paying people more money. And it was essentially because it reduced turnover of his of his workforce. But no, what happened was ultimately that Ford make it really efficiently, but cheaply. The problem with that was that it didn't move with the times and they added a couple of things to the Model T, but it basically looked the same by the by the mid 1920s and what by that stage the american consumer had moved on and the idea that that everyone should have the same car and it should be a model t which was the case i mean you know the model t was the majority it was the most popular car sold in many years it was more than 50 percent of cars sold you know around the world but eventually what started to happen is that general motors stole the idea of you know low-cost manufacturing but it started to have this much more differentiated product line and it had multiple brands and it you know in many cases its cars were the same under the hood, but they would have different styling and different colors. And the idea of car as self-expression, and in particular, the idea that you should get a new car, you know, that reflected your status in life as you, when you got a promotion, you should get a new car to show that, you know, you'd moved up in the world. And they made all this possible with the styling and the use of colors, but also by helping with the financing. So Ford was very old fashioned. He didn't offer financing plans. He said, look, if you want to buy a car, you have to give me all the money up front and I'll give you the car. It's as simple as that. And he thought lending people money was actually immoral. He thought that it would encourage people to spend beyond their means. And General Motors, by contrast, said, no, we'll help you buy a car. We'll help you trade in your old one. And here's our ladder of brands. And you should always be looking at. And they also did things like, you know, introduce a new version of every model every year. So suddenly last year's model looks a bit old fashioned. And how does that relate to today? Well, I think one of the things that's interesting is that if you look at smartphones now, they are manufactured on a a production line, you know, like like Ford's are, but they're sold like GM. Um, because you have different models, they, there's a new one every year. You know, Apple changes the 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 position of the camera, so you can <laughs> tell if it's last year's model or not, right? Yes. Because has it got the diagonal camera? Or has it got three of them? And you know, will next year's have four? I don't know. And then you've got different colors. So this idea of self-expression through technology, in many ways, the smartphone is this sort of inheritor of the legacy of the car. And if you know, and certainly in many cities, if you go somewhere like Tokyo, owning a car in Tokyo is really impractical. So the way you express yourself through your ownership of technology. Technology has long been through your phone and how you customize your phone and what the ringtone is and what's on the screen and the accessories you put on it and what the case looks like and all this kind of stuff. It's very much a sort of moving on from car culture into, into phone culture. And I think the other way in which the phone, the smartphone is the successor to the car is that, yes, you don't need to own a car anymore to get around a city. You just need a phone because Google Maps will tell you the easiest way to use the transit system and tell you when the buses and trains are going to arrive, which makes buses and trains much easier to use. But also you can call a car, whether it's an Uber or you know or another kind of taxi, using your phone. And so owning a car has become more 
you know, of a hassle in a big city because you have to park it and you have to pay for driving in the centre in, in London and that kind of thing. Basically, car ownership is becoming more, you know, inconvenient and car non-ownership is becoming more convenient because of technology, because you've got these other options of being able to summon a ride or find a ride. Uh, or, or, you've also got things like scooters and bikes that you can unlock with your phone. The the smartphone is sort of, you know, your, your ticket to mobility. I call this the internet of motion in the book because um, what the smartphone has made possible is to stitch together what were previously separate modes of transport. So in London, we've got, you know, trains, we've got tubes, we've got buses, we've got taxis, we've got trams in some parts of the city, uh, we've got scooters, we've got you know, bikes, and they were all separate things. And now you can actually pay for all of them and find all of them using one device, which is your phone. And it's your sort of universal transport ticket. So that's a big shift. And I think that's the direction we're going in. And what that means is that more and more people are saying, actually, I don't need to own a car. I can rent one when I need one. I can call one when I need one. If I want to go away for the weekend, sure, I might rent a car for that. But the rest of the time I'll do without them. And then, yes, there is this kind of Netflix for cars model where you subscribe to a car. And I know someone who's doing this. And you instead of you know paying the lease payment on your car, you just pay. I think she pays, you know, 400 pounds a month or something for the car. And that covers the insurance. It covers the charging because it's an electric car. Uh, and then at any point, you can just stop paying and they take the car away. But it also means if she wants a bigger car, she just say, well, this month I'm going to pay 500 pounds. And they bring her a different car that's bigger. And then she has that car for a month. And then she'll say, OK, I'll go back to the smaller one now. And so, you know, it's a very competitive way of, of owning a car compared with actually the hassle of buying one. Um, and, uh, and so I think we're going to see more of that kind of thing. So what does that mean for car makers? Is that for them, do things change because the middle class will not buy? Or do yeah, you no, I think it does. It, it should mean that there's less demand for cars. I mean, if you think about it, cars are, we only use them about 4% of the time. So they're, they are, for many people, the second most expensive thing they own. And yet, I mean, you use your mattress more than you use your car, <laughs> and way more, than, which is why, you know, you should always, if you yes. can afford to, spend money on a mattress. It's the thing that you use the most. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's like that on your phone. You're on your phone when you're awake and you're on your mattress when you're asleep. So buy a good mattress. Um, it's a really good investment. Whereas buying an expensive car is kind of silly because you hardly use it i mean it's mostly not used you know cities are just filled up they're really kind of dormitories for cars there are i mean i'm looking out my window now i can see my car yes and i can see lots of other cars and they're mostly just sitting here all day that is a bit um a bit daft and so if we do end up with these models where we are only calling cars or paying for cars when we need them uh, and we're in effect sharing them with other people in various ways whether that's sharing through uber or or with a rental car where you know maybe i'm not using it next month and then maybe you rent the same one that would mean that the total number of cars that we need goes down that's bad for car makers because they're not selling so many um, and having to make so many um, electric cars also seem to last longer which um which is you know problematic i think for car makers but you know ultimately that's good for cities because we waste a huge amount of space on parking we could use that space for something else and we could have parks and we could have playgrounds and we could have eating outdoors and you know there's some american cities are 40 percent parking by area it's mad so i think fewer cars would be would be good and i think you know during the pandemic we we saw what a a lifestyle that uses less cars looks like um and uh, we you know we had many streets in many cities converted to um, pedestrian use and, and that sort of thing so that people could eat outside and it was lovely and many you know places in europe certainly have have decided to keep some of those less car centric road arrangements and, and i think it's a big improvement yes and uh... After the pandemic, we are back to square one. In fact, uh, Mumbai police tried this. I'm not sure if this viral video, uh, you've seen this, where because 
we love to honk horns even when the traffic light is red. Uh, what they did was they set up a little uh, meter that would uh, record the decibel levels of the horns. And if All it right. goes beyond 85 decibels, then the traffic light would turn back to red. Uh, oh, just to discipline. Oh, just stop you, for, stop everyone beeping. Right. Yes. Right, okay, yes. Yeah. So it was an experiment. I, I mean, I don't think they went went with it, but uh, that's that's the whole idea. Where I think you also write about how it was thought that once we switch from horses to cars, it'll be a far cleaner environment. But then today, as we look at uh, whether it's Delhi or Mumbai or you know cities, which yeah. A, a good person, I'm not suggesting that the significant percentage of the pollution is down to cars, but yes, carbon monoxide. No, a lot of it, a lot of it is. A lot of it is. I mean, but, but no, you're right. I mean, so a lot of the book does focus on the externalities of transport. And for horse transport, that was enormous amounts of horse manure on the streets. And in fact, the book starts with that scenario in the 1890s, which I think is a very similar. The reason I start there is that I think we face a very similar situation today, which is that we have recognized that the way we do road transport in cities is unsustainable environmentally. And the reason it is now is because of the particulates, but mainly because of the carbon dioxide that's causing climate change. And so we've recognized that we need to sort of rethink how we you know, we can't get to the point where everyone in the world has a car. That's just not going to work. This is very similar to what happened in the 1890s, where big cities, uh, New York and London are the classic examples, were becoming um, unsustainably dependent on horses. So what was happening was that the more commerce was being done, the more trade, the more horses you needed to move everything around, the more you built railways to move people between cities, which you would have thought might help, the more that actually increased the demand for horses, because when people get off the railway trains, they then needed a, a horse to take them to their final destination. So what happened was that the ratio, the number of horses per person in those cities was going up. And the traffic was getting worse and worse, and the horse manure was piling up, and and that was that was causing health problems. And so there was this general recognition in the 1890s that there was a big, big problem. And then the car comes along, and everyone goes, "Oh, this is it. This is going to fix everything. No horse manure, so the pollution problem goes away." Of course, that turned out not to be true. But it was also thought that cars would be much safer because a horse can sort of get scared and kick you, or it can run away. And so there were all of these accidents caused by horses, and it was assumed that cars would be much safer. Also turned out not to be true cars are absolutely deadly and then there was the question of traffic and the idea was that if you replaced a horse and a cart with a car the car's about half the size so you would free up half the space on the road straight away and that would mean you'd get rid of all the traffic jams and everything would flow much more smoothly and it would all be much quicker but of course as soon as that space appears on the road people look at it and go you could get a car in there and then um and so you get this phenomenon of induced demand which is whenever the traffic is flowing smoothly people look at it and go oh okay i'll join i'll get on the road it all fills up again so all of those things turned out to be wrong we're facing a similar problem today it, just as they had these all these problems with traffic and, and road accidents and pollution we have problems with traffic and road accidents and pollution and and um the Victorians made what they thought was an obvious choice that would solve all these problems. And it turned out to bring a whole load of new problems along on its own. So my question is, you know, if we're going to make the right choice now, how do we avoid falling into those those traps that, that they made? And, you know, is it the case that self-driving cars will like solve all these problems, which is one of the things that's, you know, again, people are saying self-driving cars will get rid of traffic and stop road accidents and there'll be electric, so there'll be no pollution. And it's, you know, that sounds like a great deal, but we've we've heard this one before. So, so I'm saying we need to be uh, we need to be a little bit skeptical. At some point, I think driverless cars you you talked about. I think in China, isn't that right? Just last month they started. What I, I read, I think it in, in Wall Street Journal, a journalist 
hailing a driverless taxi. Yes. No, there are some, uh, uh, there are a couple of places in, in America and now mm. a couple of places in China as well, where you can go in a driverless taxi and it is really truly driverless. There isn't a safety driver right. there. There is literally nobody in the front. There's a company that's doing this in San Francisco and uh, Google has been doing it for some time in Chandler, Arizona, So, which is a suburb of Phoenix. So yes, right. there are a few examples of this. And I think it does quietly seem to be progress on this. Obviously, you know, the claims that were made about this five years ago have not panned out. But I think this technology is going to going to work eventually. And I think part of the reason it'll work is that in many cases, particularly in China, where it's easier to do it, the actual environment of the city is being modified to make it easier for the self-driving cars. And I think, you know, Singapore has talked about doing the same thing as well. So in those sorts of countries where the government can sort of basically do what it wants, mm. uh, they can say, right, we're going to have only autonomous taxis in this district of the city, and we're going to put in all the infrastructure that we need to make sure they don't get confused. I think that would be harder in America because, you know, people are very attached to their cars as symbol of freedom, you know, that kind of thing, like like guns as well. So, um, so if you start saying no um, human-driven cars in this town or in this neighbourhood, then people are going to freak out. But I think that is something we are going to see in, in some parts of the world. So I think mass adoption of autonomous vehicles is much more likely to happen in China first than anywhere else. Also, uh, in terms of uh, laws usually catching up with technology a little later, this yep. even this will play out the same way, right? You've written about how uh, the onus of traffic accidents that killed people was initially on the drivers, but then they lobbied and then and yeah. then it fell back to the pedestrians that, hey, you are the guys who are making mistakes. You should not be jaywalking is, is a term that you use. You know, exactly. Now, the, the invention of jaywalking. So yes, jaywalking was a very clever propaganda campaign by the car makers to essentially demonize pedestrians and say, if you're in an accident, it's your fault. If you're, if you're a pedestrian, it's the pedestrian's fault and the driver is not at fault. And it's a similar thing, actually, which is sort of just as I was talking about modifying the urban landscape to make it easier for autonomous cars. What the story of the last 100 years has been modifying the urban landscape to make things easier for drivers. So we give them right away on the on the roads priority. All of this new infrastructure like signs and, and traffic lights has to go in and then parking is provided for them and all this sort of thing. And so cities really have been taken over by cars. Previously, it was the case that you could walk. The road was a shared space between all sorts of, you know, between horses and, and people and animals. Well, the interesting thing is, actually, if you want to see that now, go to India. I mean, mm -hmm. don't have to say that yeah, to you. Yeah. But I mean, obviously, it's not the case in downtown Mumbai or Delhi. But but certainly if you're um, in the in the countryside or in a smaller town in India, you do get this. I think it really is exactly what it was like. And if you look at film of what it was like on the streets of, uh, of America in the early 20th century, it's very, very similar because you have have animals walking around so you've got like random cows and uh, occasional elephants uh, in India but then you've also got you know some horse-drawn vehicles you've got some cars you've got bicycles you've obviously got motorbikes so you have this and then you've got pedestrians and everyone gets along the um, the speed of the vehicles uh, and the people it's everyone's roughly going at the same speed which is kind of walking <laughs> speed and so you know yes. you'll have seen those amazing time-lapse videos of like Indian junctions where everything looks like it's going to crash into yes. each other and it never quite does and it's just because it's all sped up you know, a hundred times. You no, know, absolutely. And another another favorite trick that people do when they cross the road. Do you know what what it is? No. There is a speeding vehicle, and the person who's crossing the road would just put his hand out. Yeah. And uh, 
that is a sign that hey you are you've got to stop i am going to cross the street and there are or twitter memes where oh of people of, of that yeah. you know there there is a light coming out of your or like right, like right, a saber right. yeah, exactly, I mean, exactly. they just put their palm out and then vehicle stop i'm always amazed when when i cross the road in in india or uh, this was also true in sri lanka when i went there yeah. a couple of years ago uh, and when i'm with a local they just like walk out into the traffic and i'm just like yes. you can't do that you'll get squashed and it's and it's you yes. know because we have having grown up in europe it's very much like if you step into the road you mm. shouldn't be there it's for cars and if a car hits you it's your fault and this has right. been drummed into us because of the jaywalking you know propaganda campaign of, of the 20s what i liked was j stands for a country bumpkin who can't get exactly. his way around a city so it was very derogatory at the time exactly it was like don't be a go don't be a country bumpkin and um, yeah. and that was that was what it was a jaywalker and um, and it yes it was a very um, disparaging way of, of referring to people and so instead the idea was you should only cross at the corners and obviously a lot of american cities have got a grid system and so the idea was you just cross at the corners of the at the blocks uh, and always at right angles never diagonally and so that really was you know that was taking away the freedom of the streets and i think one of the good things about the pandemic was was reclaiming streets for other uses and taking them away from cars and in fact to be fair in britain we've just changed the highway code so that uh, essentially the more vulnerable road user has priority so pedestrians have priority over cyclists and um, cyclists have priority over cars and you really can see the difference when i go for a walk and i have a particular route that i do when i walk around the block when i get to the junctions and there's a car coming they have to slow down and stop and that that's not how it used to be it used to be the case that if there was a car coming you waited till it went past and then you crossed safely but now it, the onus is on the driver and this really is a change um and it really is sort of turning back the clock by a hundred years because because that's the way things used to be and with the advent of uh, electric vehicles now back to you you spoke about what yeah. happened back in 1910 and now you know with teslas of the world coming in all the major automakers have said that we are going to be switching to electric vehicles in due course so is there going to be a mass adoption because right now the price at which it is being sold is high and also the second part of the question in the interest of time i know we have just 10 yeah. minutes is the whole concept of sustainable cars because the, the the environment is important the co2 emissions and and the like yeah. how do you see that debate panning out I, I mean, yes, it's very clear that the direction of travel is towards electric cars. And I think, it, I think you know, more and more countries are basically banning petrol cars from, say, 2030, 2035. And I think it will be very difficult to, to buy one after that. This is a good thing. Uh, at the moment, electric cars are generally quite expensive. That said, actually, if you look at if you look at China, which is, I think, the biggest market for electric cars, the most popular models are very, very small, cheap models. So it's not, it, you know, in the West, Tesla really has changed the game. But Teslas are expensive cars, right? I think the, the sort of smaller lighter electric vehicles that we see in places like china and india are just as much the way things are going one of the things i think that we're going to see is the emergence of vehicles that are sort of in between a bicycle and a car in size cars do not need to be as big as they are particularly in america they're ridiculously large i mean they're bigger than some american house sorry sorry some european houses some of them I mean, they are absolutely you know gigantic and heavy and inefficient so i think um, yes there's clearly a move towards electric uh, propulsion and then provided those vehicles are charged using renewable energy then you haven't got any co2 emissions and i mean you've got the co2 emissions in manufacturing but you know in the long run well even even in the medium term uh, you come out ahead in the grand scheme of things this is a necessary part of dealing with climate change which is decarbonizing road transport it's actually one of the easier problems to solve because we know how to do it we've got the technology and provided you then decarbonize the electrical grid which is happening anyway then you've you've basically decarbonized road transport in fact 
fact, I mean, people think that, you know, this is this is a big component of dealing with climate change. It's not even that big. It's about 10 percent of the problem is emissions from, you know, small, basically cars and trucks. So people's cars uh, and then about a, about the same again from road transport of other kinds. So v- um, delivery lorries and so on. You can probably electrify those as well. What's more difficult is uh, is decarbonizing industry, steel making, cement, things like that, and decarbonizing shipping and decarbonizing aviation. Um, and again, aviation is, you know, three or four percent of global emissions, but there isn't an easy way to electrify them. Whereas with cars, with road transport, there is a very clear solution, which is you switch to electric, uh, electric powered by renewable energy, and the emissions problem goes away. It's clear that we're on that path now. Adoption is accelerating because of high energy prices and uncertainty. People don't like the fact that when war breaks out, uh, you know, the price of energy goes up and then the price of um, you know petrol goes up. And and whereas if you've, I mean, if you've got an electric car, the price of charging that goes up as well, but it goes up by a lot less because charging cars uh, with electricity is, is generally cheaper than putting uh, petrol in them. So it's clear that... Tesla has achieved its goal of getting the world to go towards electric cars. And in fact, it's interesting, the share price of Tesla has fallen in part because uh, other car makers are now so committed to electric cars that the idea that Tesla is going to sort of completely dominate this market clearly isn't true. Other car makers are getting very good at making electric cars. Um, as a result, Tesla is less exceptional and less exciting than it than it was. And I think that's one of the reasons its share price has fallen. The other, of course, is that Elon Musk is distracted by Twitter, but let's not go there. What about the arguments against uh, electric vehicles that hey are they as green as they are made out to be? I, I to be to be honest, I I I know you can make those arguments. Cobalt is mined in a couple of politically unstable places with a lot of child labour and very very low um, safety standards or none at all. That's a kind of human rights thing rather than a greenery thing. But I mean, if you look at the latest Teslas that they use a cobalt free battery, there are battery technologies, battery chemistries now that that, that don't rely on cobalt. So I think that's how you solve that problem. You do still need a lot of lithium, but there does seem to be quite a lot of lithium around. But one of the big challenges there is geopolitical, which is that most lithium in the world is refined in China. And you don't want to be reliant on China if you're a European car maker, because, you know, if there's a war in Taiwan or something, then, you know, we may end up imposing sanctions on China and then you can't get any lithium. So there are different, you know, supply chain questions being asked. But I think whenever I hear people say electric cars are just as bad as petrol cars or even worse because you know if you throw away your petrol car then and buy a new car then the carbon associated with manufacturing it is you know is terrible and then it's got all of these rare earth metals and they all have to be mined and so it's, so you should stick with petrol i think it's a stupid argument because it's generally advanced by people who really really like petrol cars or work for oil companies the efficiency of manufacturing electric cars is going to go up initially they are expensive but you know rights law let's go back to that right the more you make of something the cheaper it gets the better we get at making it the more efficient we get at making it and also, I think a lot of electric cars are going to be these smaller vehicles that use less steel, produce fewer emissions in manufacturing, require less lithium in the battery, and so on. So I don't buy this, we're better off sticking with petrol cars. That's just a silly no. argument. <laughs> um, and yes, obviously, yeah. there is a switching cost, but but it's a switching cost that we need to suck up. And also, you know, the, um, the, the world car fleet turns over every 10 years anyway. So uh, so fine, don't buy an electric car next year, wait three years and buy one when they're cheaper. But uh, we're all going to end up with them uh, if we own cars. Or- I think everyone's going to rent cars anyway. Yeah, or, or exactly. Well, whatever means of access we have to cars, they're going to be electric cars that we end up in. But what I particularly enjoy, and I think this is for the readers, is that when you write about electric cars, I think there is an, there is an advertisement, if you can see back in 1957, oh, yes, yes. 
Yeah. And let me just read this out for the ones listening. And this is a 1957 ad for America's electric light and power companies. It depicts a driverless car is what you write. One day, your car may speed along an electric superhighway. Its speed and steering automatically controlled by electronic devices embedded in the road. Travel will be more enjoyable. Highways will be made safe by electricity. No traffic jams, no collisions, no driver fatigue. I think they are a little too optimistic at the end. But it, it was quite... Uh, uh, you know, well, of course, that's an ad for a, it's not even an ad from a car company. I think it's an ad from a electrical. Provider, ah, right. right? Yeah. yeah. So they're yeah, basically yeah. saying, yeah, because obviously if you're um, selling electricity, then you want the whole of, of road transport to be electrical because then everyone has to buy the power from you. So, you know, <laughs> um, so that, you right. know, remember what the vested interests are. But yes, it is a very familiar sounding promise that we will have these self-driving electric cars that will make our lives easier and they'll go a lot faster and they'll be safer. And, and you know, that, that has has yet to arrive. And so one of I think if there's one message you take away from my book, it's the sort of cautionary tale that um, when these sorts of promises are made about wonderful new forms of road transport they need to be taken with a pinch of salt lovely thank you very much tom for your time on this podcast it was enjoyable loved it thank you so much thank you very much indeed great to talk to you thank you and tom there was one more you must have seen this a very famous bbc uh, documentary where they talk about how crows in japan have figured out a way around breaking nuts that they can't break with their beaks. They would. Oh right. Oh no. What do they do? They drop them, or they, they get cars to drive over them. Yeah, they would get cars right. to drive over them, and then the they would crows are incredibly clever, and they use <laughs> they have they use tools, and they also yeah. have sort of culture in the sense that they can teach you have groups of crows that figure out something, and then they can teach each other how to do it. They also seem to be able to recognize individual humans. Yes. Um, they can remember humans. So I mean, they are they are extremely clever. So that and, doesn't and, surprise me. And they me. would they would stop until the uh, signal would turn red yes. so that people would start walking on, on the road and that would be their cue to go in there. They wouldn't even fly. They would just walk on. Oh, right, right. Oh, there you go. That's, that's evolution. I don't know where. They are. They are amazing. <laughs> they are amazing. So there you are. Great. Well, very nice to talk to you. Thank, Thank you so much. much.